Hello, fellow innovators. This is Patrick Emmons. And this is Shelly Nelson. Welcome to the Innovation and the Digital Enterprise Podcast, where we interview successful visionaries and leaders, giving you an insight into how they drive and support innovation within their organizations. Today, we're welcoming Jay Rudman to the show. Jay is a CEO at Top Step, a financial technology firm based in Chicago that evaluates day traders' performance in real-time simulated accounts. Jay joined the team as chief growth officer and quickly advanced to chief executive officer due to his extensive experience scaling high growth firms. Prior to Top Step, Jay grew Opinion Lab Inc. from an idea to an eventual sale to a publicly traded company. He then founded Paperly. As a CEO, he grew it to be the leading direct seller of personalized products before selling it to another publicly traded company. Jay currently sits on various advisory boards, as well as guides multiple startups as a CEO and mentor. He earned his undergraduate degree from Wharton and his MBA from the University of Chicago's Booth School of Business. Welcome to the show, Jay. Well, thank you. Excited to be here. Jay, if you don't mind, please share with our listeners a little bit about Top Step. Sure, absolutely. And again, thanks for uh, including me, and I'm excited to uh, share and have this discussion. So Awesome. Yeah. So Top Step, as uh, Shelley indicated, um, plays in the uh, trading space. So we help retail traders around the globe practice their trading habits. And the way they're practicing is within a simulated environment. That basically is gameplay, no different than playing Monopoly or any of the stock picking games you might have played at university. But what the difference here is, is that we have an incentive for our traders to be successful. And that incentive is if they are good, and by good, we define that as proper risk management and Mm. uh, achieving certain daily profit targets. If they're good, then we actually graduate them out of the game and put them in the live markets. But here's the real cool thing is we give them our own capital to trade. They don't have to trade their own capital. So they never have to you know, risk their own money in the markets. They can learn in a very safe environment. And if they're successful, they get our capital to trade. That's pretty cool. Is there a split? Do they keep some of the profit? How, how does that work? Right. So there's an ANSI to be part of the game and they pay on a monthly basis. And they're not just being, uh, they're not paying that subscription fee just to be part of the game. We're also giving a ton of additional value add. They get a community that they get to connect with. We give them a ton of free education, um, coaching, you name it, because we want them to be successful traders. Once those folks get pulled up, you know, it's kind of like they graduate, as I, I've said before, yeah. then it is a profit split thereafter. Okay. Very good. What, what's the average age? What is the demographics of it? Is it all over the place or what is your, what is your, how does somebody get started? What's the average age? What's- yeah, these are retail traders. So these are not the high frequency folks you might, you know, close your eyes and dream about in terms of, you know, what goes on <laughs> at Wall Street or you see in the TV show Billionaires or anything like that. This is not those folks. These are typically folks who do this as a supplemental income source. Mm. So they might trade out of enjoyment. They might, you know, drive an Uber for some part of the day and trade for another part of the day. So some of them view it as a gig opportunity. Um, It's around the world. So I think last count, we're in 
uh, over 160 different countries, which wow. I don't know wow. which countries we're not in, but <laughs> so everyone wants to trade. They like it. They, uh, especially now with the pervasiveness of screen trading. What I mean by that is in the old days, uh, whatever old means to you, you used to have to go to New York or San Francisco or Chicago to trade, you know, London, et cetera. And you would actually have to physically be on the, uh, on the, uh, the floor. And if I may just, uh, kind of digress for a moment, that's actually where the name top step comes up. I was going to ask. Yeah. Yeah. So in the old days, you might've seen this in movies, be it, you know, trading places or elsewhere. I was thinking, uh, a day, uh, uh, Ferris Bueller's day off, right? Yeah. Ferris Bueller's day off. Yeah. You used to go and you could, as a visitor, actually watch them trading. You'd be behind, uh, you know, glass windows from, a uh, you know, a mezzanine looking down, but uh, you know, you often graduated college and you didn't know what to do or you wanted to be a trader and you would get on the floor somehow, some way, usually through some connections. So unfortunately, it was a little bit of an old boys network. I, I'm hopeful that if it was still around, it would have been much more you know, diverse. But let's just uh, go back in time and appreciate what it was. And if you knew someone, you would get on the floor and you probably got a relatively medial job. It'd be a, a runner, which basically meant you were taking orders that were paper tickets and running them back and forth. And then eventually you might have grown from runner to clerk where you might have actually sat behind a desk and accepted those orders or whatever. Um, but there was an apprenticeship approach. It was slow, methodical, and you learned through osmosis or by participating. Eventually, um, if you showed some gumption <clears throat> and ability, then you actually got into one of those pits. Obviously, there was licensure and other things like that. But you started at the bottom of the pit. And if you've never seen this before, imagine like, you know, uh, what you would see at a sports game where there's, you know, bleachers going up and you would stop at, start at the bottom of that bleacher or that pit. And as you became more and more successful, built a reputation, your book grew bigger. You know, you started trading larger, you had more clients, whatever it might be. You actually started to rise up in that pit until you eventually got to the top step of the pit. And at the mm. top step were the best traders trading the most, most successful, et cetera. And that's what we're trying to do for the retail traders to get them to the top step so they can be the best. That's awesome. Um, I want to dig into your entrepreneurial journey uh, in a minute, but like, so Tell us about the story. I, you know, we talked about it before, but I really would love to hear you share, you know, your history with Top Step and, you know, how you, you know, got engaged and now you're the CEO. Uh, I think that's a really cool story. Well, thank you. Yes. And for everyone that's listening, this is just one of those things that uh, proves that if you give back and you believe in karma, you know, things come around full circle. So when I sold my last business, um, I was trying to, uh, help other entrepreneurs around the Chicagoland community, which is where I'm located, um, be more successful. And I did that for really two reasons. One is it really made me feel good. I enjoyed giving back. Um, but secondly, it also kept me kind of in the deal flow, right? You got to see what was out there. And I have aspirations to continue to be parts of, as Shelley suggested, advisory boards, board of directors, et cetera. So you can kind of cherry pick those various um, you know, young, vibrant, growing organizations that you can help with. And by help, I'm talking coaching, mentoring, whatever mm -hmm. else it might be. I was part of that process informally and formally, formally through different organizations here in Chicago. When someone introduced me to, at the time, the, well, currently the founder, but at the time CEO of Top Step. 
um, had a great business idea, a young, inexperienced, but passionate team. And he really was looking for some coaching. And so I helped him pro bono for an extended period of time, well over a year. And we met with great regularity. I'm a stickler for structure in those conversations because I feel as if you don't have structure, then the conversations easily go down a rabbit hole. So we had formal agendas. We had, you know, conversation starting points. We basically did shared experiences. We did all sorts of things. And after that period of time, uh, the, the founder, his name's Michael, basically said, hey, Jay, can you help with other members of the team. And I said, certainly I'm happy to, but I'm going to have to start charging you for my time. I can't just do this free forever. Um, and so uh, Michael said, hey, let's think more creatively about this. And that's what got me in the door with Top Step in that I became a chief growth officer. Um, and then a few months thereafter, um, there was an appreciation that you know the experiences that I brought to the table probably were more aligned with what Top Step needed. Plus, Michael, the founder, you know, had a high degree of self-awareness and appreciation as to what he wanted to do and where he wanted to lean into his strengths, which is really in product development, ideation, creativity, etc. And so we each found our appropriate swim lane and I became CEO and he became um, a title that we call, you know, chief vision officer, which is really helping think through probably the classic function of R&D. Um, and that's worked very successfully from that point forward. That's great. And uh, you mentioned the self-awareness and I think that's a, that's also a topic I think I, I'd like to discuss uh, today, but I did want to go back to, you know, your entrepreneurial journey, if you could tell us how that started, right? So there's always that first dip in the cold pool of like, right. am I really going to tell my parents I, I don't have a job and convince them <laughs> that it's a good idea? <laughs> Well, what's funny is, is I probably didn't have to have that conversation because my dad started his own business nice. and my grandfather started his own business. And then later in life, it was celebrated, yeah. right? Like almost encouraged. Exactly. You know, what's funny, Patrick, is I didn't know there was another option. I didn't know right. people like worked <laughs> for someone else. I think, you know, you saw that on TV or you heard that, you know, to friends, dads, but I didn't really think that was an option. Um, and, you know, now that I hearken back based on your question, I probably started so early where I was running, you know, and probably many listeners were thinking the same. I was running lawn care services as a high schooler where I pretty much had a monopoly on my, you know, my uh, subdivision. And had a, I, I was probably richer back then than I am now because my uh, obviously the outflow, the expenses weren't as dramatic. <laughs> but, you know, cutting lawns at an early age teaches you a lot of things. I remember that antitrust uh, effort about your lawn care. <laughs> there was some action from the federal government. <laughs> no, I did not get a call from the Justice Department. I can promise you that. It wasn't that large, that's for sure. But fast forward to uh, postgraduate school. Um, this was in the late 90s. Um, and for those business historians that were know what was going on in the late 90s, that was uh, Web 1.0. You know, we're probably on, I think, the you know, the, the 3.0 is what they yeah, say. 3.0 yeah. is conventional wisdom at this point. Yeah, I know you blink and it's gone, but uh, it was 1.0. And what that basically meant was none of us knew what the heck we were doing. <laughs> um, well, we were so really confident we knew. We really thought we did. And whatever we announced in the public, the public ate up, right? I mean, we basically made an announcement for an e-commerce business that I uh, helped found and it, uh you know, the news went crazy and viral and the inbound was ridiculous. So 
regardless, that definitely whetted my appetite. Uh, grew that business from nothing to something. We sold that business to uh, basically an affiliate that became part of the, the Amazon family. And then from there uh, to, I think, Shelly's introduction, helped start a business here in the Chicagoland area that's called Opinion Lab. Um, long story short, Opinion Lab was really the first to create what we see as ubiquitous now, that feedback button on every single mm. website. Opinion Lab um, was the, the innovator and voice of customer. How do we capture feedback from all individuals on the website to enhance the user experience? Eventually sold that business to a market research business out of New York called Varens. And then started another business called Paperly. And that Paperly was a personalized business that um, really competed against the Amazons and the Walmarts of the world. Because at the time, Amazon and Walmarts were incredibly good at selling a product to you and delivering it very quickly, but they couldn't personalize anything. And so Paperly really tried to find that empty space or that unique selling proposition of personalization. So not only could you order something and get delivered quickly, but it could have your name on it, it could have fonts on it, it could have the color, a design, it could have anything that you wanted. Um, and that's what Paperly was that I eventually sold that business as well. So um, yes, uh, a few entrepreneurial successes, but boy, did I learn a lot in every single one of those. How bad did that hurt? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, every learning was painful. <laughs> yes, no doubt about it. But quick. Yeah, quick. I was going to ask Jay in the, the frenzy of the late 90s, if you could go back in time, what's one thing that you would have changed? Although I'm sure you made no mistakes. <laughs> in terms of business or in terms of yeah, the, right. the 90s itself? Like <laughs> Either you know, one. Shoulder pads, right? <laughs> No, at least it was it, 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 from a fashion standpoint, at least it was past the rolling up of the jeans. Right. With, right. That was that was 93 to 95. Yeah, yeah so. I agree. I agree. I think my biggest learning from that and it's going to sound like from a point of privilege and it's not intended, but, you know, it was what is the deal at sale? What's the acquisition? Like you get your first term sheet and you really don't even know what the heck that is. And to kind of understand what you should be negotiating on is incredibly important. So here's the story, Shelly, is that everyone goes towards price. Like, give me the biggest price possible. Like, I want as much as possible. And 100%, I totally agree with that. But the nuance behind that is, you know, is it cash? Is it stock? Is there earnouts associated with that? Um, as I said, we basically sold to an organization that was publicly or became publicly traded how you know how big is the how long is the lockup and the, the reason i share that is you know the end of the bubble story in the late 90s was the bubble burst and you know the same thing that happened in 2008 happened you know in the late 90s basically tech stocks went to you know close to zero that definitely hit a made error and if you're locked up that essentially means you can't sell your shares and that's what happened to me and my team and so you were basically negotiating price, 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 when maybe we should have been negotiating, hey, we're going to be outsiders. So maybe the lockup should be shorter, or maybe we don't even have to have a lockup. So you have to make sure you think through all the contingencies and outcomes. So you're negotiating the right thing. And so now when I've sold businesses, I think about it a little bit differently of, hey, maybe I can take a little bit of a haircut on the price. I hopefully won't. But if I am, I'm going to get something more advantageous in terms of other elements that are important to me. Interesting. And just uh, for those, if you don't mind sharing, like, I, I know what an earnout is, but I thought maybe if you could share 
right? What an in and out is specifically. Absolutely. So an acquisition, whenever an acquisition occurs, or quite often when there's an acquisition that occurs, the acquiring company wants to keep senior leadership as part of the larger organization, NUCO, whatever you want to call it. And the way that they're going to do that is going to make economic incentives to kind of keep you retained. And so what they'll do in the, uh, the term sheet or the LOI or whatever you know, document they're using to kind of lay out the terms of the potential acquisition, they'll dangle carrots in front of the, the leadership team that basically says, if you stay for X period of time and you hit certain key results, oftentimes revenue, profitability, or number of accounts retained or whatever else, will you know, give you more or less um, in terms of that compensation. And so the, the ultimate objective is to try to keep talent from the acquired company and the new company. You've got a, a very high success rate, right? Most entrepreneurs have at least one failure, like a mistake, right? Is there anything, like, what, what do you think is your, I don't want to like have like, oh, I wish I you know, read more books, things like that. But is there anything in your mind like, where you're like, this was the most important thing I learned through these these different events? Um, great question. I think, let me harken back to your high success rate. I think I go into every business as to how am I going to sell this business? So that is the understood expectation and outcome that I'm driving towards. So I try to build and you know, some of it was luck, some of it was purposeful um, and intentional, but I try to build businesses that are sellable. And I've heard the exact opposite feedback and suggestions out there of like, oh, just, you know, build a business as a, as a forever entity. And I completely appreciate that perspective. But if you're not building a business to be successful and sell, um, at least from the perspective and lens I'm looking through, then, you know, um, it never will sell. Because you will have either too many skeletons in the closet, you won't have productized your offering, like you'll have created a service business. I mean, look at all the services businesses out there that never productized their service. And one day someone wants to retire and there's no value there other than a customer list and maybe a reputation and no one's going to pay too much for any of that. So I think you have to start with, um, you know, how do you build a business to sell? Even if you don't want to. Correct. Right. That's my belief system. I agree with you. I think there's a intellectual laziness that goes along with the idea of like, I'm building a big clubhouse that I get to hang out at all the time and nothing challenges me. Cause I think with your focus, how you're approaching it, it requires the rigor of like, so how do we do this without me? Right. As opposed to what I think what you're mentioning. And I've seen as well as organizations that are really just built around uh, the, the founder. Right. And then the second you want to sell it, the founders usually operating under a pretty bad sense of value in the marketplace. Right. And then they have that heartbreak meeting where it's like, no, no, no I want N it's like, uh, it's M right. right. It's, <laughs> it's like, one tenth of N. Right. It's one. Exactly. It's, it's not a, right. M's not close. Right. right. So absolutely. And I think when you, uh, when you also are building a business to sell, it's a forcing function whereby you are seeking partnerships, alliances, competitive intelligence that otherwise, to your point, Patrick, you might get lazy and just have ignored because oftentimes you're going to be selling to a strategic. The only way you're going to get a strategic is that you're going to have to sit down at the table and convince them of the value of your business well before a sales conversation ever occurs. And so that's really a forcing function to you to sharpen and hone your, your business. That's fantastic. 
Shelly, do you have any questions? No, I just, for a second, I'd love to go back to top step because I'm just really curious, you know, what are, what's the criteria for either getting in or using the platform? Right. So a trader um, can just sign up for the service. In fact, there's a free trial that you can go to topstep.com and start and run with it. Now, when you juxtapose that um, to the brokerage model, which is really the competitive set we're going against. So Shelly, if you had, if you wanted to be a trader, and we saw this with the Robin Hoods of the world and not to disparage Robin Hood by any stretch, but anyone could open up a Robin Hood account, just like anyone can open up a TD Ameritrade or, um, you know, Schwab or any other account, you can do it and you can start to what they call screen trade and screen trade is just to delineate versus, you know, those pits that I spoke of earlier, we were actually on floor trading. So you can start to screen trade and trust me, those brokerages, I love them. They're partners of ours. We work incredibly well together. They'll be very happy to take your money. <laughs> very happy if you put your $10,000 in because the data suggests that as a retail trader, especially a novice retail trader, you are not going to be on the winning side of the trade. Um, and there's all sorts of you know knowledge and competencies and biases associated with that, but that's just the the the, out, the natural outcome. And so what we are doing, Shelly, is, is basically we're saying instead of putting that ten thousand or twenty or twenty-five thousand dollars into that account without knowing how to trade, come here, learn at an incredibly inexpensive and valuable um, way, and then when you're ready, either fly the coop and go open up your own personal brokerage account or earn some capital with us. Okay, great. Is there an age requirement? Because I got a couple of high schoolers that I think would be interested. Is that something that they could get involved in or do you have to be a certain age? I think you have to be, I mean, and it's not our rules. I think you have to be at least 13, obviously, to create an account. I think okay. online. Um, and then I think you have to be at least 18 to uh, legally sign, you know, an agreement. Um, okay. and those, so I would highly recommend at least 18. Perfect. Perfect. I did want to go back to, you know, you mentioned the self-awareness and leadership and and some of the things that Michael's demonstrated as, as somebody who is successful because of that self-awareness from your experience, right? Is that self-awareness something that, you know, you, because I think some people would think, oh, you got to get to that level to then demonstrate that, right? Like Bill Gates never ran his own company, right? He, I don't think he was ever like CEO. That was always somebody else's job. He didn't want that job, right? So is that something you think uh, people who have a growth mindset, they, they're they always pursuing that? Or is that, hey, what, what's your philosophy around that, about that self-awareness of knowing like, this is, I'm not going to be successful here, even though the title is got prestige with it, right? There would be some allure to that, even if it isn't a good fit. Right. Yeah. It's hard to speak in generalities. I'll tell, I'll tell you for myself specifically, I was a an idiot early in my career, right? I got specific facts. Were we all? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think what happens is, is again, speaking from a, a point of privilege, I went to, you know, as Shelley suggested, to, you know, premier schools. You come out thinking you're a hotshot and you probably have some level of expertise in some functional area, be it finance or marketing or whatever it might be. And you apply that, you know, what do they say? If uh, you have a hammer in your hand, the whole world looks like a nail. So um, that's what you're doing is you're just hammering your way through things. I think eventually what you learn through failures, and I'll share a failure in just one moment, um, that you learn the importance of 
I, I hate the term, but it's the one that's kind of, uh, again, conventionally used as, you know, the softer side, the, the, the managerial side of business and the importance associated with it. And once you learn the importance of people and relationships and everyone having shared understanding and communication, then all of a sudden you realize the, you know, the magic elixir associated with business success. And I've had so many failures uh, along the path that I've learned from, and hopefully others, you know, continue to learn from their mistakes too, but I'm highly introspective and retrospective and look at these things you know, one failure was um, in my paperly business. So paperly essentially was, analogous to a pampered chef or an Avon Tupperware. So I have a volunteer workforce spread across 40 different states. I had 600 uh, reps and these reps are essentially stay-at-home moms. And I use that largely because that's what the demographics suggest, not to paint a picture, but that's what the demographic was. And these folks are selling to you know their friends, their family, their neighbors, et cetera, these personalized products. And I quickly appreciated that I'm not going to know every one of these 600 reps across these 40 states. And somehow, I'm going to have to make a connection with them. And I completely, quickly understood, based upon you know some failures along the way, how important it was to establish leadership, to establish training and education, to establish a strong connection to the mothership to you know, really drive towards what the mission and vision associated with the business was, because otherwise these folks are untethered and you know, they can um, really ruin the reputation, they can ruin the brand, they can misrepresent, and they probably aren't going to sell very well. So if you can do all those softer side skill things well, then you can actually build a bit good business. And I, that was a huge learning for me. I have, I have another question because I'm, I'm, mm-hmm. I wrestle with this one. You mentioned... Um, you know, that introspection retrospective, right? Like there's, there's this uh, ideal that I think people have of, of innovators that they have, or just Americans overall have this concept of uh, confidence is, is like this thing we should all like aspire to have like this idea that like, and, and my contention, and I'd love to get your thoughts is like, my contention is that if you're like a 10 on the confidence scale, you're kind of worthless. Right. Where it's like you you don't learn from your mistakes. And so then you have to have people jam it in your face all the time. But in the it, it, you know, and I think there's a lot of people out there who put on the the armor and demonstrate like I'm super confident. Right. And like they know they they feel like they have to do that to, to like keep up the facade. I do think there are people who are really just, you know, megalomaniacal. Right. Where it's like you're just kind of a lunatic. Uh, and they're successful because of their their there's you know psychotic behaviors. But like, w- do you have like thoughts on this? Do you have a philosophy or ideas on like that that idea of like you can't be a pushover, right? You can't like have like a setback cripple you because clearly that's not what's needed, right? You ran through challenges, you took the hits, and you kept moving. Uh, but you also learned how to dodge hits instead of keep taking them. So the, the self learning, you know, like a seven or eight on the confidence scale. Uh, versus somebody who's at 10, because I do think there's people out there that like they think they have to be this person and, and it's not true. Right, right. And I think that has to do with just being very overt and you know where you feel your your strengths lie. Um, I say quite frequently in my team, you know, you're the expert at and fill in the blank. And the reason that the expert at is they think about it all day long. Hmm. They're much closer to the data than I ever 
well be. And they're probably getting feedback much faster than I ever will. Trust me, anything that comes to me has already probably passed through three layers of an organization where all the easy ones have already been picked off, right? And so I hope they get picked off because that enables them to not only answer questions faster and be more responsive, but also enables them to grow in terms of decision-making. So I totally say quite frequently that, you know, I don't have the answers. In fact, uh, someone once told me, and I love the quote, I'm going to try not to butcher it. Like, I don't have the answers to your questions, but I'm certainly going to question all your answers. Um, I love it because that's what I do as I, you know, I guess it's like the Socratic method of learning. I'm going to ask tons of questions, both out of curiosity because I'm a curious individual, but also because I want to make sure you thought through all the positive and negative consequences of the various choices that you're presenting. That's um, great. Yeah. And so I think that helps diminish the, the confidence and then it becomes trust and relational and all those other things that people know that they can bring things to you because you're not going to have this hubris that I know the answer before you even walk in the door. Right. Right. It, it does say something about your culture. If everybody's looking for permission. Right. Right. It means that they will trust, right? Like uh, right. I'm afraid I'm going to get scolded. I'm going to, there's right. going to be a negative. So like, if you're a leader, I don't care what level, if that's what's going on, you need some introspection, right? You're, you're, you're not creating a safe culture, right? People don't have that feeling like I can be brave without right having somebody you know hit me if i do something wrong yeah not physically but you know what i mean yeah. <laughs> you know, like, i get that you know. i get that i mean we believe in feedback in an organization a lot of organizations do also believe in feedback but the the feedback is usually um there's usually two mistakes that are made that we try not to make at top stuff the first one is is that i never want patrick to come to me and say jay i have feedback for you because that's a tough conversation. Totally. It should always be the other way of, Patrick, what feedback do you have for me? And that basically opens the door and makes it a much more productive conversation because Patrick says, oh, Jay's interested. Like, I'm going to share with him. And you can share constructive, appreciative. You can share all sorts of feedback. The second mistake people make besides not asking for the feedback is that they basically then try to justify their, um, their behaviors. So Patrick gives me feedback and I say, well, Patrick, you actually, you don't understand the situation. The reason I was doing it this way was the only response at top step is thank you for the feedback. Right. And then that's it. Yeah. And that it makes, creates that psychological safety and security that you spoke of to ensure that there is, you know, communication and learning that occurs. That's great. That's great. I'm going to throw another approach what I do with folks is I'll go to them and I'll say a good friend of mine gave me this one. It's called the one thing. Right. Okay. And like, I'll say to whomever, like, Hey, uh, I, I want to improve our relationship. I want to make sure you and I are on the same page. I want to make sure that we're working as good a team as we can. What's one thing I can do to Love it. establish, right. Grow in your eyes of respect, appreciation. What's the one thing in the next month or week that if I start doing, stop doing, start doing more of, right. Whatever that is. And what's really interesting with that, and again, all my ideas are stolen. uh, So give credit where that's due. What's always interesting is the second you open that up, the the person goes, okay, they give you the feedback. And then the next thing they say is, so what's the one thing I can do? And it's just, it's so transformative of like, hey, let's start with, you know, let's start with me. I'm I'm in, uh, you know, I'm the boss. I get it. But at the same point in time, what can I be doing better? And uh, just opening the door that way, I think it, it, it's amazing to me how quickly people will start with themselves when they feel safe. Yep. 
Absolutely. I love that approach. Yeah. Well, I, one of the things we like to cover is as grow, as people grow and you being a mentor. So you totally appreciate that. And like working with other CEOs and people that you're passionate about, you know, very few people are entrepreneurs. It's growing, I think. And I think that's great. But what are some of the, who are some of the mentors that you leaned on? I, you know, you mentioned, you know, it, it, it runs in your family. And so clearly there's people there that you, you could reach out to. Who are some of the other people that you reached out to that helped you grow? Right. Um, and this is another great learning. So thank you for raising this. Um, I wish I had mentors earlier in my career. So that's the one downside, I think, associated with trying to forge your own path is you don't have kind of an easy structure to lean into. If you went to work for Accenture or McKinsey or name a firm, you kind of have built-in mentoring. Um, and so when you're out on your own, you're looking left and you're looking right, and there's no one there. You have to go seek it. And what often happens, at least that happened in my situation, is that you get so buried in your own work that you ignore what could be to your right or left. So early on in my career, I did not seek it. And that was a big mistake. I would say later in my career, I seeked it. And what's lovely is, is that here in Chicago, it's an incredibly big totally. but small community at the same time. Totally. Um, I can pick up the phone and call almost anyone and have a question. Um, and also, I have found that people are incredibly willing to participate in you know, your improvement. So you know, back to your point earlier, Patrick, of saying, hey, what's the one thing I could do or what's the one thing I should do or here's the situation? Have you faced this before? People are incredibly willing. And I've done everything from where um, before COVID, if there was a life before COVID. I, would, um, <laughs> I don't remember. Yeah, I know. I don't remember either. I would host, which was really just call five people that I you know, really wanted to know better and invite them to breakfast. And I did this on a quarterly basis. And there would be some that would show up every quarter and there would be some that were one and done. So that's perfectly fine. But it, we would start just a great conversation over breakfast. And it's a great opportunity to have face-to-face about the various challenges and opportunities people are faced with. And, and so I really realized quickly how uh, decrepit my network and my uh, mentoring was previously and have worked incredibly hard in today's world to ensure that that can, doesn't happen again. That's great. I, I, I couldn't second that more, right? I think when we're younger, we think we don't have anything to offer, right? We, we don't understand, like the next generation has plenty to offer of just listening, right? Asking yeah. questions and letting us transfer some of the knowledge and the, you know, the, the beatings, right? Physically that we took. Right. Right. Because that was, that <laughs> was what happened. It was closed fist. They stopped that around 98, but uh, right. you know, before that it was whatever you want to do anyways. <laughs> so, but yeah, I do think that's when I talk to younger folks, sometimes they're like, well, what, why would this person give me time? Right. right. What am I offering them? And it's a, uh, well, cause they spent a long time building this knowledge and they want to give it to somebody. Right. They want, they want that, that flame to continue to grow. So Awesome. Well, I, I wanted to thank you for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Awesome stories. Uh, everybody go out and, and get yourself a, a top step account and figure yeah. out how to like, you know, get your side hustle going for some extra money. Right. And become uh, part of the, uh, the community there. Uh, but Jay, thanks for taking the time to talk with us today. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Jay. My pleasure. I enjoyed it immensely.
We also wanted to thank you, our listeners. We really appreciate everyone taking the time to join us. And if you'd like to receive new episodes as they're published, you can subscribe by visiting our website at dragonspears.com slash podcast, or find us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode was sponsored by Dragon Spears and produced by Dante32.